TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Thursday, February 8th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we'll speak to the National Communications Director for AMVETS, Marine Corps veteran John Holwarth, about several issues including the Please Stand Super Bowl ad that didn't happen and the resulting controversy, as well as the commotion around a possible military parade being looked into by the Pentagon at the direction of the president. Later, the co-founder and CEO of Combat Flip Flops, a company making cool things in dangerous places, Matthew Griff Griffin will join us. Griff is a West Point grad and former battalion ranger whose company is not only creating some pretty cool products, but also trying to address the root cause of conflict at the same time. We'll talk to him about his business and the charitable aspects of it in just a bit. But first, it's time to talk about what's going on around the world of veterans. And to do so, as usual, we welcome producer Jake Hughes into the studio. Jake, good morning. How are you? Uh, Good and not good. Why not good? Because today is my second day uh, back on the patch. Oh. I'm quitting smoking again, and this yeah. time I mean it. I've been kind of, you know, we've talked about this in the past. You and I, uh, the two, uh, the two people here who have been smokers in the past, and have been kind of up and down on the whole quitting thing. And go, I'll go for a while without some, and then I'll get some. And you know, it's just kind of, a, it's a struggle. It's not easy. And for me, the big problem continues to be the drive into and home from work where it's 45 minutes and it's, uh, you know, I've got some good audio listening to stuff from Connecting Vets, of course, listening to our co-workers products, as well as uh, some other podcasts that I listen to, some of them from veterans like Jocko Willink and people like that. Actually saw a friend of the show, Rob Jones, is considering uh, coming up with a podcast. Really? Yeah. I'd be interested in listening to that. Yeah, we might have to talk to him and see if he might like that uh, put out through Connecting Vets. I don't know. Maybe a possibility there for something. So we'll have to look and, uh, and see what he's doing there. But he's talking about doing like an advice podcast. You know, as someone who's overcome incredible amounts of adversity in his life, uh, I think he's someone who has a pretty good outlook on things. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get too... Uh, What's the right word? I don't want to say he doesn't get too excited, but he doesn't go. Uh, he 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 looks at things very realistically, pragmatically, uh, and optimistically without being overly optimistic or too pessimistic. Something that uh, I think someone who's who's overcome the adversity that he has, of course, losing both of his legs uh, and not letting that slow him down one bit. As we know, he rode a bike across the country a couple of years ago, and then just this past fall ran thirty-one marathons in thirty-one days in thirty-one cities. Uh, also, in other Rob Jones news, as well as a whole bunch of other veterans, Rob Jones was named one of the Hill Vets 100. Really? Yeah, he's added to that list. Um, I'm proud to say that I was also named as one of the Hill Vets 100. Really? So, yeah. Why wasn't I named? Uh, you, I helped the show. You weren't nominated. I was nominated by someone who actually let me know they were nominated. I am me. important I like, here. I was like, okay, well, thank you for nominating me, and we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll see uh, what comes of that, because... There, when you look at the people on the list, John Kelly, White House Chief of Staff, former general, uh, 
Representative Don Bacon, who's been on the show before from Nebraska, a former Air Force general. You're looking at like flag officers, national politicians and names, people like Rob Jones, who's uh, you know as inspirational as they come. And then way on down the list, you're like, Who, who's this dummy? Yeah. Now- Eric, Eric, what? How do you pronounce that last name? Yeah. D-E-H-M? That sounds like some kind of foreigner to me. Yeah, when you say it like that, now I I don't want to be on the list. I don't think yeah, I deserve it's it. It's kind of like yeah, it's it's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, oh, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just does not belong. Um, but anyway, very very happy to be nominated and then uh, selected as one of the Hill Vets 100. Uh, a f- quite a few people that have been on the show on that list of nominations and uh, and selectees for the Hill Vets 100 uh, and so many inspirational people. So uh, the, the announcement was made yesterday, uh, but the full list will be available tomorrow for people to look through. So we'll continue to talk about that. I think there's going to be a, an award ceremony in uh, late March, so about six or seven weeks from now or so. There's going to be an award ceremony which will be a a fantastic thing to be a part of. So absolutely looking forward to that. Also looking forward to today's show, as I mentioned, John Holworth, who is the National Communications Director for AMVETS, is going to be joining us in the 730 block. And then in our feature interview spot, Griff from Combat Flip Flops will be joining us, somebody who we've talked to before uh, who's really doing amazing things. I mean, they're creating cool products, flip-flops with like AK-47 casings as the... I don't know what you'd call them, like the bolts or whatever that hold the uh, the flip flop things right. together. That's cool, and they could be doing that, you know, at like some factory in in uh, you know Iowa or whatever, or someplace in the United States. What they're actually doing is all of their products, or I believe most of their products, if not all of them, are actually made in conflict zones. Really, places like Afghanistan. In fact, as as you'll hear in the interview, because it's a it's a pre recorded interview. In full disclosure, uh, Griff is out in Montana right now and uh, working at uh, this amazing charity that we'll talk about during the interview that helps special operators uh, transition to civilian life. Um, so he's out there doing that. So we had to pre record due to time constraints and uh, talked to him about the fact that one of their factories in Afghanistan, the factory in Afghanistan that's making uh, uh, sarongs and shamogs, which are like those, you know, the scarves uh, that, that they wear over there, uh, that it is a factory owned and operated by women. That is a big thing in Afghanistan. It's a huge thing. I mean, 10 years ago, a little bit more than that, I guess, 20 years ago, uh, def- definitely 20 years ago, probably 10 years ago, that would be unheard of. Women were not allowed to do anything other than uh, keep the home clean and procreate, essentially. That was what was seen as the job of women under Taliban rule in Afghanistan. Um, And over the years, things have gotten uh, uh, better over there. Still not where you'd like them to be, but we had uh, things like Malala Yousafi, who was shot in the face by the Taliban for daring to go to school at, what was she, like 11, 12 years old when they attacked her? Um, You know, different things like that. Uh, I got to see some of it up in uh, RC North when I was up there, uh, a women's school that was opened where we actually bought the U.S. ambassador to Germany. He visited and we brought him out to that school and I got to go and take some pictures. Fascinating stuff. Uh, that was great to see, but you also, uh, it was palpable how dangerous it was for them to be doing that. You know, when you have, when you build a, a school in the United States, you don't need 12 foot walls with barbed wire on top of them around it because people might want to come in and attack it because you're daring to teach women how to read and girls how to read. Uh, so yeah, what combat flip flops is doing is uh, truly fantastic stuff. And again, doing it by making this cool stuff. It's a great business model. They make cool stuff. A lot of people want 
And they're making it in places like that, which helps those economies. And as he talks about in the interview, addresses what he sees as uh, part of the root cause of extremism and conflict in areas like there. Uh, they've also uh, been producing stuff in in other countries as well. So you'll hear that interview with Griff talking uh, to us in just a little bit. Now, he is a West Point graduate, and there's a pretty uh, upsetting story coming out about, well, really all the service academies, including West Point. And we have a story uh, on our site about sexual assault reports at West Point. They doubled in the last school year. Oh, no. According to data reviewed by the AP, the latest example of the armed forces persistent struggle to root out such misbehavior, fourth year in a row that sexual assault reports increased at the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. Uh, 50 cases in the school year that ended last summer compared with 26 made during the 2015-2016 school year. So the Academy in Maryland, uh, Naval Academy, Annapolis, and the Air Force Academy in Colorado, Colorado Springs saw only slight increases, whereas the U.S. Military Academy at West Point saw a doubling. I mean, that's a significant increase there. Yeah, that disturbs me a little bit. because A, a lot, because yeah. these are the future officers that are going yeah. to be leading people at the uh, in, in the Army, you know? Yeah, that's what I that's what I'm talking about is that these are the people that we're supposed to be looking up to. That like when you see a West Point any army officer is deserving of respect because they achieved something. But a West Point graduate is supposed to be a cut above everyone else. Right. So to see them and see people at the at prestigious environment engaging in such behavior is very troubling. Let's look at it this way too. You know who investigates those uh, claims of sexual assault and who often rules on them at the lower levels in the military? Officers. People like the people at West Point. So if you have someone who, uh, let's say something was reported or wasn't reported and they, there's not enough evidence for it, that person could feasibly be uh, judging a sexual assault case in the future. Is that something that you want happening? Hell no. I, I would say no. That's not the person that you want doing that. But uh, it is, it's an issue everywhere in the country, everywhere in the world. And it's uh, it's a significant issue and one that has been brought to light a little bit more recently. Um, and we don't know the details of every case there. We don't know. I mean, there are always going to be a fraction of cases in, in any sort of, uh, of criminal activity that there is no basis for. But when you're seeing 50 in a year at a school like West Point where there's not that many students at West Point. I mean, I now I'm going to need to look it up. Do you have any idea? I know you didn't go to West Point, but do you have any idea about how many students are at West Point? Sadly, no. I know it's not a lot, but I don't know the exact number. Well, let's see if we can find it. We can go on here. Yeah, Wikipedia. They never lie, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, do, 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 do. The student body is 4,294 cadets. So 50 is, I mean, you know, 1% of that would be what, 442 or something like that. So it's, it's over 1% of the cadet corps being involved in, uh, you know, being involved in, uh, in, in sexual assault investigations to say the very least. You're not saying again that all 50 of them were valid cases or anything like that, but you're talking about almost 1% of the Corps of Cadets up at the middle military Academy at West Point being involved in sexual assault investigations. That's, that's, that's significant. Yeah. That's a significant number. I mean, and, and at a place where you would hope that that wouldn't be happening at all. Now, listen, human nature, there's going to be bad people out there. Bad things are going to happen. I'd like for there to never be a murder, a rape, anything like that in in the world. Feasible. It's just not feasible. It's, you know, it's just, again, human nature. There are bad people out there who are going to do bad things. But in a, a small environment like that, less than 
4,500 people, about 4,300 cadets with 580 academic staff, uh, the majority of which are military officers in that military setting, you would hope, particularly with how regimented the lifestyle is there, that they'd be able to, to have none there. But even at a place, as we said, at that regimented, that small, um, you're talking about you're talking about 50 cases. That's that's a significant number. Uh, it is unacceptable. Absolutely. And it's something that West Point is going to have to find a way to deal with. Um, you know, we've seen stories involving uh, there was one involving a football player who uh, was accused of some things and still allowed to play in a football game. So when you see stories like that coming out and things like that happening, it makes you uh, makes you wonder what they actually are doing up there. Yeah. To actually combat this stuff. And I mean, if someone's accused of something and still allowed to play in a football game, eh, that gives you kind of pause. Like, well, what, what are your real, uh, priorities. Your priorities up there? Military Academy. So West point leaders say that they're taking steps to get more victims to come forward. Um, an anonymous survey last year suggested there were more sexual assaults than were reported. And it said 12% of women and 2% of men said they experienced, experienced unwanted sexual contact. 12%. So if we're seeing 1% of, uh, of the student body being accused of uh, these, these uh, atrocious crimes, sexual assaults, I, but 12%, according to an anonymous survey, said that they had some sort of unwanted sexual contact. With those surveys, I, don't, I haven't seen it. We'd have to see the survey to know exactly what it says because that brings to mind when I was in college and there was the whole one in five uh, women in college will face uh, will be sexually assaulted during their time there. That was the number that was put out there, and it didn't seem right to me. Twenty percent, and then you looked at the survey, and it counted like someone trying to hold your hand, someone trying to give you a kiss on the cheek at, at the, after a date or something like that, and you turning your head away. I don't put that into the same category as a sexual assault or a rape or something like that. Um, but on, under that survey, it was. So again, we don't know what this survey says, but 12% is a large number. That's over one in 10 of the females at the academy and 2% of the males as well, saying they received unwanted sexual contact from uh, someone at the academy. So uh, a significant issue, either any way you slice it, yeah. um, no matter what. Again, if it's, and it's again, it's someplace that is, Part of our military training the future officers of the army and in such a, a small contained environment, I think you should be able to get it down to zero. Or if you have those isolated cases, have those people gone immediately and know what's going on. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, more is going to come out about all this stuff. When the news stories come out about, you know, that, that there are... <coughs> Excuse me. I heard that one over here. You didn't make it in time. Still getting over. Still getting <laughs> over a cold, man. No, well, I, I I wasn't feeling well yesterday. After the show, went home uh, and planned on doing some work from home. And my wife's working downstairs, so I go upstairs into the bedroom, sit down in the bed, pull out the laptop, and next thing I knew, it was uh, eight o'clock at night. I was waking up, and <laughs> my wife had brought my alarm in, uh, my phone to be my alarm, and I ended up sleeping for something like 17, 18 hours. That's just a good a, day. Just a nasty little cold that caught hold uh, the night before I started getting that, you know, the scratch you get in your throat and you just yeah. don't feel great. Woke up yesterday and was like, oh, this isn't good. Got down here and as the as the morning went on during the show, felt worse and worse. 
Uh, so I, I left right afterwards and now feeling quite a bit better today. I don't know exactly how I'll be feeling a couple hours from now, but when I woke up, despite the fact that, I mean, you sleep for 17, 18 hours, you got the sleep in your eyes it, out. It, 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 it was, there was more of that than eyes for me. Like my yeah. eyes were like welded shut. My <laughs> lips were chapped. I was sweaty. I mean, it was uh, 18 hours of uh, trying to sweat it out of my system essentially is what my body was trying to do, but feeling a little bit better today. There's another thing, and we're going to talk to John Holworth from the AMVETS organization. He's got an opinion about this, and that is this parade. Ah, yes. That was reported as, again, media headlines, you know, wanting their clicks and everything. Trump orders military parade. Well, not necessarily. He asked the Pentagon to look into the possibility of it, so he ordered them to look into it. Uh, it hasn't been planned. It hasn't. There's been no date. It hasn't been confirmed that it's going to happen. Uh, that is uh, a big conversation. As we said yesterday, better make it mandatory. Otherwise, all you're going to have is like the Lifer Brigade out there, a bunch yeah. of guys with the Lifer mustache <laughs> marching along, just doing their thing. Um, there are... Not a lot of people who would want to do that voluntarily, I don't think. Yeah, and I had a, a friend of mine that I asked, how would you feel if you were asked to participate? His response was, I can't go. I have dental. Right. <laughs> and you have an opinion piece up on the website, ConnectingVets.com. The troops don't want a parade. Yeah, by and large, I asked. Now, this is a small percentage. I asked of uh, anecdotal. Uh, exactly, anecdotal. I asked of a uh, veteran and military Facebook group I belong to, and the General feeling was that most troops would prefer something like if you want to honor us, let us have a day off. Let us have, you know, especially because <laughs> if this is going to happen on Veterans Day or Memorial Day, those are mandatory 96s. That's, you know, four day weekends when we get to spend time with our family, go out, barbecue and have fun. Right. So we don't we they would prefer not to do it. Plus, just the logistics of it. Like I go into detail in my article about the logistics of just getting four tanks from here to D.C. and having them run down the roads and how hor horrible it would be like for the roads, for traffic, the logistics of getting the tanks here and everything. Yeah. It would just be, it's... You'd have to put them on planes, fly them up from like Fort Hood, get them no, into the No, you area. don't put them on planes, you put them on trains. You can put them on planes too, can't you? Can't you put them on the, the C-5? You can put one on a C-5. Oh, I thought they could put like two or three on nope. a C-5. Oh, they, okay. they weigh 70 tons. Yeah. I could lift that. <laughs> Just put one on my back. I'll bring it on up here. Uh, the logistics are interesting because, as you said, if they want to do it in Washington, D.C., uh, there are several military bases around here, but... How are you going to get all this stuff that's not around here? Certain things, as you said, like armor, there's not a lot of armor in the Washington, D.C. area. The nearest military post that I know of is either Fort Benning or Fort Stewart. That's in Georgia. That's yeah, a pretty long drive. Yeah. I'm talking like a 12-hour drive to get up here if you're uh, driving in a car going 70, 80 miles an hour. Um, whereas, uh, you know, for the Navy, obviously nearly impossible. You're not going to bring too many ships up here. It's a very small waterway, the Potomac and all that stuff. Um so they, they wouldn't really be able to take part. And obviously, Navy ships don't go on roads. That's obviously. Part of what they what, do. But they don't? They're not amphibious? No. You don't have amphibious carriers? What the hell, Navy? We have, well, amphibious assault ships, well, one of which I was on, the USS Saipan, which has since been decommissioned and turned into uh, razor blades or whatever else they do after they, <laughs> they slice them all down. They're, uh, they're flat-bottomed, so they're able to come in kind of shallow, not like really close to shore, because if they get stuck on the on the 
ground. If they get grounded, that's a big problem. So they bring them in. And then what you do have is LCAX, landing craft air cushion, their hovercrafts basically, where you can put Marines or uh, Marine equipment, vehicles, whatever on board. So they have those. And then the, uh, the other um, uh, amphibious landing crafts are basically flat bottom little motorboats that come up kind of like saving private Ryan. We still use similar vessels to what they used in saving private Ryan. Yeah. They're faster now and they're better in many ways, but they come up, they drop open the, uh, the front and it drops down on the beach and drive stuff off. And then the boat turns around and goes back. So yeah, we still have, uh, we still have those, uh, amphibious, uh, vehicles out there. And the, and the Marine Corps does have, uh, it's amphibious vehicles as well that kind of drive right off of something like a, an LHA or an LHD, an amphibious assault ship. They are in the water as long as it's kind of calm water. If the seas are too rough, they can't do it. Uh, and they can go in, you know, from a mile offshore or whatever, go in, do their thing, and then uh, and then come back. There's um, you know, a lot of limits to this parade. I, I, don't, I don't think it's going to happen yeah. when you look at it, the realism of it. It's also you know, not just the logistics of it that you're talking about there. How about the logistics of security for something like that? Mm-hmm. You want to talk about a target for those who would like to do harm to our military and our country? Try having whatever number of sailors, soldiers, Marines, airmen, guardsmen that are going to be there uh, at one parade. Boy, that makes it mm-hmm. a put big a, time target. Put a bow on it for any ins- any terrorist or someone yep. extremist. So you would have all sorts of... Uh, security there. If the president is calling for this thing, he's going to be there. That means secret service is involved with everything. Uh, it, it would be, it would be a nightmare. These things really only work in specific places like, Oh, say North Korea, where they don't have much uh, fear of terrorist attacks or insurgent attacks or uh, you know, anything like that. Their own uh, internal uh, organizations that might be against the government because they're a brutal dictatorship and they've, <laughs> they've killed most of those people. So uh, for us, I, I just I don't see it happening. It doesn't seem like something that's uh, doesn't seem like something that's even possible to me. I mean, when I look at it, the list of reasons why it wouldn't happen is a mile long. The list of reasons why it would be good for it to happen and why it could happen is very, very short. Yeah. So, you know, I understand the, what the president's meaning behind it was trying to celebrate the military and, you know, okay, that's fine. The actual putting it into motion, I think would be incredibly difficult. To yeah. The and, and there's also the point of you do these sort of things to flex your muscles and show how mighty your military is. We show that every day where we are in combat operations, where we are in support operations around the world. We have four aircraft carriers, I believe now. No, we have 11. Oh, ele- we have 11. Yeah. Okay. We have 11 aircraft carriers. That's the most powerful Navy in the world when you think about it. So we have all these things that we do day to day that show how strong our military is. A parade is just, you know, it's flexing for no reason. Yeah, it's uh, forward projection is part of something that we do that nobody else really does. And when you talk about the most powerful Navy in the, in the world, not even close. You could add together every other Navy in the world. They don't have what our Navy has. I mean, it's it's really quite simple when it comes down to it. Uh, our, our naval power is so far beyond anything that anyone else has, uh, it's not even close. So, you know, we, we have, uh, yeah, I think it's 11 or 12 carriers. Let, let me do the count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11, with uh, two having their keels laid, being built, basically, and then uh, uh, another one that's unnamed that's been ordered and hasn't gone through because we do have 
Uh, we do have a couple that are uh, coming up on probably the end of their their life, basically. Uh, the Nimitz and the Eisenhower, which are 1975 is when the Nimitz uh, came into being, 1977 for the Eisenhower. So you're talking 40-year-old plus aircraft carriers at this point. Um, they're, you know, the Nimitz is up in Bremerton, Washington. Or Sorry, yeah. The yeah, Nimitz is up in Bremerton. The Eisenhower's the Ike is down in uh, Norfolk. So yeah, we have 11. I think China has like one and it doesn't really work all that well. They bought it from the Russians who have like one. And if you know anything about the Russian aircraft carrier, <laughs> holy geez. You've told stories. Yeah. The Kuznetsov, the Admiral Kuznetsov, which is basically incapable at most times of moving itself from point A to point B. It's tugged around uh, by tugs. And uh, when it is operating under its own power, there's a big thick plume of black smoke coming out of it at all times. It's uh, yeah. If you look up the Admiral Kuznetsov, this carrier, you will see some fascinating videos. One of these amazing carriers, they are carriers, these amazing tugs they have that bring it around these ocean going tugs. That's a crazy job to pull around this huge aircraft carrier, but that's the best that they have. And then they sold one or two of their old ones to China. And that's the best that they have. It's it's really, I mean, again, you could add together every other aircraft carrier in the world. doesn't come close to what we have. I mean, honestly, one or two of ours is probably enough to uh, to be a little bit better than every other one that's out in the world. France has one. Uh, England has one, I believe, one or two. There's not a lot of them out there. Naval power is something that we have a, there's a vast gap between us and everybody else out there. We know that. And those carriers are traveling around the world. There's four or five of them out at any one given time doing things in every theater of operation. That's kind of how we let people know what our military is doing. When they see it off their coast, that shows a little bit more than, than, you know, marching down the street in uniform. Right. Which, uh, you know, uh, then again, maybe a, a lot of people in the uh, in the civilian community don't particularly know what our military is doing, and that's on them. Go to Wikipedia. Look yeah. it up. Google <laughs> it. You know, do what you can. We'll be talking to John Holworth from AMVETS about that very issue, this parade, the Please Stand controversy, which he was very much involved in, and more. It's the morning briefing back with AMVETS after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Vic Hughes is your producer, and ConnectingVets.com is your website. Go to ConnectingVets.com right now, and you'll see good, interesting articles focusing on those things that affect veterans. Affecting you how? Well, just in general, in your pocketbook, in your wallet, all various ways. There's a lot of things affecting us out there, and ConnectingVets.com is working to cover those each and every day. Got one on there, 10 better ways to support the troops in a military parade. That's an interesting one out there. An opinion piece from super producer Jake Hughes on the fact that he doesn't think too many troops want that parade to happen. (laughs) It's a big one. It's an interesting one on there. We've also got Grunt Style's new Grunt Fit app. We talked to their president of the Grunt Fit app yesterday. It's an interesting thing they've got going on there, trying to help veterans and non-veterans get back into shape with the help of a drill sergeant in their pocket. You know, there are a lot of organizations out there doing great things for veterans. There are a lot of veterans out there doing great things for other people. Take, for example, combat flip-flops. Yeah, 
an organization that's working to address the root causes of extremism through making some pretty awesome products. And we are now joined by the co-founder and CEO of Combat Flip Flops, Griff, here on The Morning Briefing. Griff, welcome back to the show, man. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Well, from Montana, I guess, as you say. Yeah, calling in from Montana, and we're going to talk to Griff just about what he's doing out there in Big Sky Country. But first, for those people who aren't familiar with who Matthew Griffin, a.k.a. Griff, is, let's give him a little bit of your background, Griff. So as I understand it, you went to that United States Military Academy at West Point, and then what happened after there during your Army career? Where'd you go, what'd you do, and who'd you serve with? Uh uh, I am a member. I graduated in the class of 2001. So uh, most people know we graduated in June and then in September, a life-changing event happened, which solidified my resolve to go into the Rangers. Uh, I went to my first conventional unit at 520 Infantry. So I was the first striker company in the Army, which was pretty cool. We got to get those brand new eight-wheeled vehicles and bounce around the country uh, doing a lot of cool training. And then I went to 2nd Ranger Battalion of Fort Lewis, Washington. And while I was there, I did three deployments to Afghanistan and then one to Iraq between 2003 and late 2005. And my wife and I were, were dual military family. We had two kids at the time and it was either, uh, you know, stay in and, and move around the country and be away from her family, which is all from the Northwest, or we stayed there and contribute in other ways. So we decided to get out and get back uh, through volunteer service. Now, when we think about, uh, you know, getting out of the service, everybody has a unique story. Of course, everyone is an individual. Think back to your time when you leave, you know, West Point graduate served in the uh, 75th Ranger Regiment. You get out of the military. What was that point in your life like? Did you have a direction you knew you were heading in? And did it turn out to be the way that uh, that you thought things would go? Uh, if you were to tell me that I would be running a flip-flop company in 10 years, I would say you're crazy. But <laughs> Um, it, it was, it was a very different time in my life. And uh, you know, a lot of guys, they get out like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And the only thing I decided that I really wanted to do was I wanted to take care of my wife and family. I was willing to do anything I, that I could in order to make that happen. And I just took a job. I was really fortunate. Another veteran hired me to help build homes, to work for a home builder. And I did that for a few years when I got out so that way I could spend some more time with my family, you know, learn the professional world, round off the military edges and then start working my way back into a professional career. And of course, that professional career ended up being that flip-flop company that you just mentioned a few moments ago, Combat Flip-Flops, <laughs> which is a, a pretty amazing company. And the story behind it, not just the founding of it, but the story behind what you guys do and the products that you create is pretty fascinating. So give us the, the basic rundown of what exactly Combat Flip-Flops is and where the idea came from. Well, we say we make cool stuff in dangerous places. Uh, and really what we do is we go to areas that are suffering from conflict or wars. And then we put people to work, so small business entrepreneurs making fashion and lifestyle products. And then we export them to the U.S. and we sell them here. And then with our profits, we put little girls to school in Afghanistan. So we started as a company making flip-flops in a combat boot factory in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, to, to provide jobs to the Afghans that we had worked to support and to liberate and, and to advance since 2001. And we've since moved into making product in Colombia, Laos, Afghanistan, America. Uh, last year, we made some products in Syrian refugee camps. And we're constantly looking for, for new conflict areas that we can support through basic fundamental economics and product development. 
Now, there might be some naysayers out there who say, well, these guys are looking to profit off of war. They're going into conflict areas because it's probably going to be a cheaper place to make it. That's not what combat flip-flops is all about, though, is it? It is way more expensive um, to make products in war zones than it is to make it anywhere else. I can't tell you how many mentors, investors, business advisors just say, you know, just make your stuff in Asia, make tons of money on profit, and then just give a portion away you know, to support your philanthropic cause. But for us, you know, the root cause analysis, you know, a lot of these reasons why these areas are, are under conflict is because of jobs. There's just no mm-hmm. jobs. And so the only employer there is the war or radicals. And so if we really want our service members to stop deploying to these areas, we need to take a serious look at the country's economy and what can we do as a nation to further that. And that's what we do. And it's expensive and it's time consuming and it's painful, but it's worth it. It's really worth it. You know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, if someone had told you that you'd be running a flip-flop company when you got out of the Rangers, you'd look at them like they were crazy. I imagine some of the workers who are creating these things for you in places like Afghanistan uh, might say the same thing if they, if someone were to tell them they'd be working for an American company making flick, flip-flops in the future. Uh, what has the relationship been like between combat flip-flops and, and those people within the, the war zones where you guys operate who are working for you? Has it been a, a positive relationship and positive feedback from them? Uh, there's a line that says borders that have merchants seldom need soldiers or borders frequented by merchants seldom need soldiers. Mm. And I believe it, you know, I, I really believe that, you know, if you're building a relationship with these people in these countries through a business, a positive business relationship where every, each person's taking care of their own family, like I'd mentioned before, you know, we're getting out of the military. All I wanted to do is take care of my family. You know, that's the common ground that we come to when we're working in all these war zones. They just want to take care of their family. And the working relationship has been fantastic. We work with a woman-owned and operated factory in Afghanistan. We employ anywhere between 5 to 15 women every day. Um, our, our Colombian footwear manufacturer, they were a shop of five guys when we first started. They've had to remodel the whole factory. And now they're employing 20 to 30 people. You know, it's just, and we have fantastic relationships with all the manufacturers because we're just families, you know, working together to make it happen. And it, it feels good. That's all I can tell you about our relationship there. (laughs) Well, and it's amazing, too, as we speak with Griff, co-founder and CEO of Combat Flip Flops, about the fact that a woman-owned and operated factory in Afghanistan, which for anyone who knows anything about the recent history of that country, uh, especially under Taliban rule, that would have been uh, not just unheard of, that would have been literally impossible just, you know, 19, 20 years ago now as we look at things. Uh, how proud does that make you, the fact that you're able to to work with that company and the fact that working with them is actually perhaps helping them grow and be able to sub- sustain themselves? Uh-huh. It's amazing. Uh, you know, I remember one time we, we sent a sarong, we make these sarongs for women and we sent it down to this, you know, bikini model. And there was this beautiful photo with a palm tree behind her. I mean, it looks like a Corona commercial. And, uh, and then I grabbed that photo and I sent it back to the women in Afghanistan. And who would have thought like how much pride that they would have had because here's these women who are under all of this oppression. They've got to, you know, travel to work. Some, some, some ladies have to go 45 minutes to an hour each way through dangerous areas to get to work, to provide for their family. Mm. And here they make this product that takes 10 hours to make. And now some beautiful woman is wearing it on the other side of the planet, proudly representing their work. 
and the pride that comes from that you know, internationally is, is really cool. It's, it's, it's really, um, it's been really impressive to see how their, the pride of representing their country has really grown in the work over the past few years. And you've also grown in, in what you guys are offering. I mean, the name of the company is Combat Flip Floss, but browsing through your website again recently, I was seeing that you guys have shoes available, as you said, clothing and blanket wraps and things like that. Um, how has the process gone since starting this company, which obviously you had uh, great motivations for doing so, as you mentioned, in, in helping people in these war-torn areas, uh, as far as growing the business aspect of it, how has that gone? I mean, offering more products is usually a good sign, but how has that experience been for you overall? Um, I'll just be really candid. We're first time. We've never ran a business. I'll tell you, fail our way. <laughs> and, you know, we thought we were going to make it. And then, you know, the first time we had gone through a spring and a summer and we were selling tons of flip-flops and all of a sudden it got the fall and people started going back to school and our flip-flop sales turned off. We started scratching our heads and go, man, why aren't, why aren't we selling as many flip-flops? But it never really occurred to us that people weren't buying flip-flops in the winter. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and and so we, you know, we just had to pivot, you know, we, we said, okay, what can we sell that identifies with the mission that fits our mission statement? And okay, let's make a bag. Let's make, you know, let's make some jewelry. Let's make some t-shirts. Let's make some scarves. Let's go on. And, and people, you know, agreed with it. And they took a look at our mission statement and there's nothing that specifically says footwear. It's as we help entrepreneurs in conflict zones and we enable the mindful manufacture piece through trade. And we make high quality products that don't suck, right? It's good value and it helps people. And our customer base, the unarmed forces have, have really moved forward with that. So it's been a, an iterative process, lots of failure involved, but we seem to be doing okay. Yeah. And I mean, you guys were featured on the show Shark Tank. And as you said, lots of failures. But one of the the constant things when we talk to our veteran entrepreneurs out there is hearing, yeah, they've all failed in, in various ways, some pretty big ways at various points in time, but they find a way to get past that. And that's certainly something that Combat Flip Flops appears to have done pretty well up to this point, And I would imagine would continue doing into the future along with creating these shoes and clothes and blankets and things like that, uh, you guys are also involved with a number of charities. In fact, as we mentioned at the top of the interview, you're out in Montana right now at uh, this very special thing that that you're working with. First, tell us a little bit about what you're doing out in Montana right now. So I'm with an organization. It was founded by one of my uh, West Point classmates, Kevin and Stacy and his wife, Shannon. And he was a little bird pilot in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And, and he really understood that special operations families needed a little bit of extra help as they transitioned out of the military because he had struggles in his own transition. And he started an organization called the Station Foundation. And really what they do is they do performance counseling and transition training for special operations veterans and families as they depart the military. So uh, I, I describe it as... Um, if you're if you're in the special operations, you, you, you daily adrenaline dumps. You're doing lots of cool and fun mission runs all over the world, and then you're all of a sudden back in suburbia, dropping kids off at soccer practice. That's a very tough transition to handle. And they have a, a performance measure program with some of the best psychologists and brain scientists in the world, and they help veterans go through that. And so right now this week, my wife and I are out as serving as mentors for the couples mentor workshop. 
Wow, which is really fantastic. And the Station Foundation uh, serving uh, is obviously a great need. I mean, I think when those of us who served in the regular forces like myself think of the special operations community, whether they be Rangers, Green Berets, SEALs, Marine Recon, all those people who do uh, those high-speed operations, we think of them as the best of the best and prepared to overcome anything. But I think it is important to remember, as you said, adrenaline dumps every day. They are dealing with things that uh, it takes a special person to deal with, but they're also dealing with it for such a long period of time that uh, it can create some very unique uh, struggles when it comes time to get out. I mean, did you go through anything like that yourself, having been a, uh, a regimental ranger guy? Uh, when you got out, was there anything uh, similar for you that happened, like the things that the Station Foundation deals with? Uh, definitely. I wish the Station Foundation was here when I got out, but they uh, they were just getting formed. But I, I struggled with it. You, know, you live in a purpose-driven environment surrounded by a whole bunch of people that push you professionally and personally on a daily basis. Um, where you feel like you're really a part of the family and then all of a sudden that family's gone, right? And you're, you're just kind of lost. You really don't have any purpose and you struggle and you, you try to find it in work and you overwork yourself or you try to, you know, to try to drown it with a beer or five and that doesn't work. And eventually you just come to the, the fact that you might actually need a little help and, you know, get, get some direction provided to you. And these guys do a great job of it. And I've been through their workshops uh, on, the, on the person side and, it's, it's one of the best things I can do uh, that I can recommend for others to do is to, to go through a really solid transition workshop on the way out the door. And for it being for special operators and run by special operators, I think that's certainly uh, something that, that people can appreciate. Of course, one of the other big charities that you guys work with, is, it ties in very directly to your mission, and that is Aid Afghanistan for Education. Um, as someone who deployed to Afghanistan and got to go out and, and see the conditions, got to go to, I believe, the first women's school that they were building in Mazari Sharif up there uh, and see you know, the, the education kind of gaining a foothold in Afghanistan in a way that it had never before. Um, over the years that you've been involved with it from back when you were originally in Afghanistan to now, have you seen an increase and a good direction, good movement in the movement for education in Afghanistan uh, for everyone, but for women in particular? And what is Aid Afghanistan for Education doing to, to continue that movement if it's there? So uh, there has been a spectacular movement forward in women's education since 2001, since the United States has been there. Uh, the, the way that it works, and I'm, I'm just going to explain why we, why we do what we do so that way your listeners understand, is women in Afghanistan are now able to be educated and funded by the government. But culturally, they're married at between the ages of 12 to 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And the way that works is the government says once they're married, it's the burden of the family to pay for the education, and most families can't afford it. Right. So a woman is married to uh, a you know, an Afghan man who's typically a few years older than her, they have a couple kids, and then he will pass away before she passes away. And typically the kids are 10 to 15 years old. Um, she doesn't have an education that can be used to seek employment, to, to pay for housing and food for her family. So the kids go out on the street, right? And they're not in school and they're begging for money or they're working jobs. And then that's where they get picked up by rabbits. Right. So this is the, the where we try to do the root cause analysis and why educating women is so important is if you educate women, they're going to be able to support themselves and their families if anything happens to their husbands and their kids are going to be in school instead of out on the street being recruited by radicals. So that's that's the reason why we educate women in aid Afghanistan for education. And I mean, over 
the past five years, we've nearly educated 500 women through the sales of our products. And it, it really doesn't seem real sometimes. You know, we say, hey, we do this. And, you know, just like, like any, any company you're running it, you just kind of like in the, can't see the forest through the trees. And I remember, you know, just after Shark Tank, we're just selling tons of product. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. This is awesome. This is awesome. We're making donations and answering emails. And all of a sudden, one email pops up in my inbox, and it's from one of the schools. And it's a bunch of the girls in the classroom holding little signs. It just says, thank you, Combat Flip Flops, for your generous support. Oh, and as I tell you, like, I started crying. I forwarded that to my wife. She started crying. The whole office was crying. It was like 830 in the morning. It's, it's, it's really meaningful. You know, you are making a difference in somebody's life when you provide them with an education, whether it's at home or abroad. And, you know, we just choose to do that in areas where we think it will help them and it will help our service members. You know, it, it really is beneficial. And if that is able to to address the root cause of all the violence that takes place over there, that would be amazing. And, and it would lead to something that I'm actually seeing from a, a line of clothing and mugs that you guys have put out uh, that's called Adventure, Not War. Uh, it's got an AK-47 with mountains on top of it, which makes me think of, of being in Afghanistan myself, flying through the mountains in a, in a Blackhawk or an MI-17 and looking around and seeing, you know, this is such a beautiful country. It's a place that uh, could be huge for tourism a place that people would want to come and see, you know, if it weren't as dangerous as it is now. Do you think that's an achievable goal? Do you think that there may be some day where you and I will be able to go uh, on a vacation, maybe to go back and visit some of the places that we were in Afghanistan for, for very different reasons? Do you ever see that happening in the future? I, I do see it happening. Um, Adventure Not War is if you're familiar with the program, but you could check it out at, at adventurenotwar.com, but it's about taking veterans back to areas in which they served or fought to do adventures, um, to, to meet with the locals, come to a common understanding of your love for the outdoors and seek connection that way instead of through conflict. Uh, last March, we were the first American team, first veteran team, first team that we know that ski ascended and descended Iraq's tallest peak, wow. uh, Mount Hallgard. Yeah. And it's already winning uh, film international documentary film awards. And it, personally, for me, like I fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, and most of my bad days since getting out of the service came from Iraq. And since going on that trip and skiing off the top of the mountain and having a good time with, with our Kurdish friends that were there and coming back, I haven't had any bad days. Hmm. So personally, I'll tell you, it's very healing to go back and have these adventures and not war. Um, but I do believe that Afghanistan will be like it will be in the 50s and 60s. We'll be able to go back. We'll be able to do big mountain climbing and ski mountaineering and river rafting and, and all the cool things that the country deserves. Uh, it will get there. It's just going to take a little bit of time. You know, I think for those people who might hear you say that and say, that's not going to happen, that's impossible, need to think back to the Vietnam veterans and how they probably felt that same way in the early 70s when Vietnam was coming to a close. Uh, and now it's a place that, that they're free to visit, and they do go. I know many Vietnam veterans have gone back there and have found it to be uh, you know, a healing process, an enjoyable process for them to go back to uh, the place where they spent some of the worst days of their life. So, you know, I'm, I'm certainly hopeful that someday uh, within my lifetime I'm able to go back to Afghanistan and see the places that I saw in a different context. I think that would be a good thing. And it seems like the work that Combat Flip Flops is certainly working towards pushing things in that direction. As you look forward for Combat Flip Flops, I mean, you, you've got 
this expansion that's happened, as we mentioned, into clothing, shoes, as we just talked about, the uh, Adventure Not War, uh, the, the things that are for sale on there for that. What do you see as the future of combat flip-flops? Do you see you guys continuing to expand your line of products or zeroing in and focusing on who your audience is? I mean, what's next for combat flip-flops, Griff? Yeah, you know, we, you know, we've really been founded and grown by the military community. Uh, for the people who have been there and done that, they've got behind us. And they've, they've grown us as a company, and we're extremely thankful for all their support throughout the years. And now it's starting to gain traction. The people outside of the military that don't really understand it are willing to take a look and really like embrace the concept and drive it forward. And so now we are looking to expand our user base beyond the military community to people who are concerned citizens who really are interested in ending the conflict. Mm. Um, we are a direct-to-consumer company, so if you want to buy our products, you can get them on two places. Actually, a little bit more than that, but primarily you get it on our website, combatflipflops.com, or if you really feel kind, you can buy us on Amazon. Uh, make sure you leave a review. And then we have a handful of boutique dealers around the country that sell our product. And that's just what we're going to focus on is, is meeting the consumer where they're at on the platforms that they want to be and constantly supplying them with cool, fresh new products, whatever they may be. So that's, that's our expansion. Bigger audience, more focused sales growing the product line where it, where it really makes sense. Well, we've been talking to Griff, the CEO and co-founder of Combat Flip Flops, and obviously through the Station Foundation, where he is right now out in Montana, still working with veterans. And let me ask you as a final question, your fellow veterans out there who may have a good idea like you had with Combat Flip Flops, may even have one that they're looking to ch- tie into charitable, charitable work like you've done. How would you recommend they go about trying to get something started with a good idea? It's, I know it's not easy. I know that you said you, you struggled and you had failures along the way. What, what advice would you give to a veteran out there who thinks they've got a good idea for the next you know, company that's like Combat Flip Flops and might, they hope might find the same kind of success? Uh, I mean, there's just three things. One is Google. If, how do I start a business? Question mark. Uh, two is find a mentor. You guys have been there before. If you're coming up behind them, it's, it's their duty and responsibility to help you coming up behind them because somebody mentored them at some point in time. And then three is just get started. Don't wait. Just start doing it. That's, that's the it. big thing, you know. Don't wait for somebody else to to get you started, right? You got to do it yourself, and that's something that uh, I think military members struggle with uh, when they become veterans. Where you always had that command structure kind of telling you what to, what to do. I mean, unless you were like a four star general making the decisions. When you get out, it, the onus becomes more on you. Is that something that you think veterans should be prepared for and and work to kind of address? You know, being that self starter a little bit more than they had to be when they were on active duty. Um, the military invested time and leadership in you to give you fundamental leadership skills. And now that you're out in your communities, you have to put those skills to work. And that's what created the greatest generation post-World War II. And I think all of us, if we were to tend to look around our communities, we could probably say it needs that leadership now. And I believe in our community that's going to get out and do it, whether or not you're starting your own business, working within a business, or just being a community leader, just got to get out and do it. There you go. Wise words from West Point graduate, Army veteran, Ranger veteran, Matthew Griff Griffin, the co-founder and CEO of Combat Flip Flops, who's joined us this morning on The Morning Briefing. Now, Griff, if people want to find out more about Combat Flip Flops, where do they go? Uh, Website is combatflipflops.com and follow us on all of our socials at Combat Flip Flops.
Well, there you go, Griff. Thank you so much for your time today. And hey, I'll let you get back to enjoying the beautiful location that you're in right now out in Montana, brother. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. Take care. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.